This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And yes, this is the Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and I'm the host of this program. And each week at this time, we bring an interesting, thoughtful, illuminating guest who can shed light on an important topic, whether it's national or international. Uh, but we don't do the three minutes and thanks very much and move on to the next interview. What we do, of course, is we do a deep dive into the topic. So for the next period of time, settle back and we're going to be talking to William Byrd, who is uh, the head of the Media Monitoring Africa Project. It used to be around the corner from my house. I think you've moved some some place now. No, we, uh, we're still in Parkhurst, over the road from uh, Jolly Rogers and a few other. We would have just been able to do it uh, together, but I'm in Cape Town and you're in Johannesburg, so we'll have to do it this way. William, or Bill, as we often call him, I didn't realize this. He got his start as a film and drama major and then found himself sliding ever further forward into media monitoring. And this, um, as I understand that this came about as part of or allied to the, the change in South Africa's basic governing and management and society when there was much more public attention and much more professional evaluation of the contents of the mass media, uh, electronic that is on how important national issues were being covered and how the time was being allotted and whether there was in fact an informed debate and discussion about products and issues and, and questions. And he's been at it pretty much ever since. And it's grown to a, an institution that gets quoted often. Most recently, he and a number of other people, including another, a former neighbor of mine, name dropping we are doing here. You filed a petition with the courts, if I understand the, the, the terminology correctly, to force the government to get, to get on with the business of appointing and swearing in the board for the South African Broadcasting Company, because otherwise it was without a board and operating in effect in contravention with the basic laws that govern it, even as it is facing enormous challenges. It's been Oh, close on five months since the collection of names were approved, and still we wait. And the board has not been appointed, and therefore cannot take action. Is that, Bill? Am I am I am I accurate in my description of of this most recent act on your part? Yeah, that's pretty much spot on. You know, we've um, lodged papers with the constitutional court uh, asking for direct access. We're a little bit disturbed by the recent. Um, Rejection of another matter involving the president over his pala pala, the parliamentary report, uh, report where they denied the president direct access. And so we really are hoping that, um, because this is quite a clear and crisp issue, issue for us and because it's already elements of it have been, um, looked at in earlier cases, because it's been looked at in earlier cases, we're wanting to make sure that, or we're hoping that the constitutional court will actually hear the matter, but four and a half months for a multi-billion round institution to not have a board is just is just a recipe for disaster. And yesterday, uh, the Standing um, Committee on Public Accounts 
was, I mean, wow, I haven't seen a parliamentary committee that scathing since possibly the 2016 inquiry into the SABC uh, shenanigans where there they were scathing. I mean, they, they were really incredibly critical of the SABC and of the minister on a number of, for a number of reasons and quite legitimately so. You know, this is a, a critical public institution. It was one of the few public bodies actually that was functioning well and reasonably effectively um, over the last five years. So much so, in fact, that the last board that left in October, 50, uh, the 15th of October last year was the first board that I can recall that actually served out its term since the very first board that we put in since democracy. That shows you and tells you something. And yet Parliament still was so lackadaisical in their approach and attitude that they weren't able to uh, get them, get the names done anywhere near in time. And now we've got the president faffing around and telling us that it's about a misalignment or some such nonsense. Now, I mean, does it really matter, though? I mean, there are so many other sources of information now, whether or not you or I or the guy down the street or the woman across the road pays much attention to the SABC in all of its various manifestations, broadcast television versions, uh, a bunch of radio channels, including vernacular languages and more popular channels and various other services. Does it matter if it even has a board? I mean, other than the law says it must have one. I mean, what, why bother? I mean, if the fact that SABC's audiences are declining is not unusual to public broadcasters the world over, right? You've seen significant uh, lack of or decrease in viewers for entities like the BBC. Also, thanks in no small part to political interference with the BBC that's led to their news quality going down. But that's a, that's a different issue. But, I mean, it matters because if you look over COVID, you saw that people needed places to go in order to get reliable, credible, accurate information. It matters because the world over, there's a resurgence of people recognizing the importance of having a public broadcaster and certainly having public interest media. Because, yes, there is, we are very lucky to have a lot of different media. And if you've got access to the Internet, you can pretty much get access to, you know, anything from anywhere around the world, including, you know, our own great publications and lots of our own radio stations. So it's not as though we don't have that. But... Crucial to that mix is a public broadcaster because it is still the one that, that is mandated to do things like produce children's programming, uh, targets groups and provide programming for groups that don't meet specific um, commercial bands of, of wealth and, uh, and economy. They have to provide languages, uh, information in all of our official languages, not just the ones that are really big and popular. They have to provide coverage of areas where Generally speaking, we don't get coverage, and we've seen this when we've looked at coverage, for example, around elections. The SABC, because of its enormous footprint, does give the most diverse geographical coverage in terms of spread, and that's a, and that's a good thing, right? You need to encourage lots of other media to spring up around there, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is we need that. We also know at the moment from the Broadcast Research Council that currently – 33% of our population still rely exclusively on SABC free-to-air television services for access to TV, right? That's a third of our population only on access to, to SABC. So 
if you collapse that institution, if you say, well, it doesn't really matter that much, you know, you're effectively negating and denying the rights of a third of the population of South Africa. And that's talking in terms of adults and households. So it doesn't talk about, you know, the, the even more marginalized people and groupings. So if we want to give meaning to our constitution around dignity and equality, then a key part of that mix is a public broadcaster. And that's important for the bigger reason around why media is so fundamental, because if you don't have independent, diverse media, you don't have a democracy. It's that simple. So if you allow a key element of that to die, you're effectively allowing a critical component of your democracy to die as well. We're speaking with William Byrd of the Media Monitoring Africa organization. And the proximate reason for our conversation is a recent effort to the constitutional court to get the government to appoint the board that has to govern the SABC, but there are larger issues. We're going to be right back after this commercial message, this station identification, our break. This is the Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and we'll be right back with you. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back. And this is The Deep Dive. I'm Brooke Spector, and our guest today is William Byrd of Media Monitoring Africa. And just before we took our break, he said something which really struck a chord with me, and probably many of you, if you if you caught that moment. Third of the country, which then roughly translates into 20-some million or so people, are totally dependent for their news coverage on one or another of the SABC's channels for coverage of all the events that happen domestically, locally, and internationally. And you take that away, if the institution of the SABC stumbles and falls, they are without this information. Now, I want to add one other thing. Um, I've read in various places, and I I don't remember the precise number, I'm sure you have it, that something on the order of two-thirds of the country still relies, first of all, on radio for its news and information. And if that's true, then that says that the channels that the SABC provides in all the various languages, English and others, become a crucial part of the information envelope around the people of the country. And then to the extent to which it's not managed or is managed badly or is managed inappropriately, we have real problems. But there's another part to this. I'm not sure if this is totally within your purview, but the question of this switch over to digital that has been, well, it's been in the offing for, I think we're now almost, almost at the decade mark, but any number of promises. Uh, perhaps you can explain what this means and why it matters and why the fact that it is not happening matters even more. So yeah, this is one of the things that there's, you no, know, we all want it to happen. So basically, in, in, in simple terms, our broadcasters currently use frequency that the mobile operators desperately want and need in order to offer better quality, introduce more 5G services and allow for more data to be, um, you know, spread across the airwaves because that's the key. Uh, you know, that's, that's our liquid gold these days is data. Now, to do that, you need everyone to have access to a digital device, and that's fairly simple. So for people like us, 
that's relatively easy. If you're middle class, you've got a digital device, you've got access to the internet at uh, at the office, or you may even have it on uh, at home. You've, you're already digital, and you don't need to worry about any of those things. But for that third of our people, and for those that earn less than, uh, I think it's 5,000 rand a month income as a household, which again is a fairly sizable number. So that 33% are those that are the poorest of the poor, let alone the kind of lower middle class who that 5,000 rand a month income bracket. They can't afford to buy one of those uh, sets. Now, they should have been a set-top box that the government was manufacturing. They theoretically did, and they theoretically had them in storage. And they were meant to issue those out on a subsidized basis. So the, the, the basic problem here is, is that like so many things in South Africa, there were too many chefs, too little uh, actual cooks in the, in, in the kitchen to do the work and far too much greed to look at seeing what exactly they could steal without actually achieving anything. So while we were meant to have cut off, um, our digital signal, our analog signal in like 2010 or something around there, um, you know, various ministers came and went. We've had, you know, our average minister of communication lasts around 14 and a half months. Um, and that's only been stretched by the fact that this recent one has been staying with us. And so that's been on their agendas, but none of them have tried really hard. But also, as I said, you've had very significant competing interests. And, you know, all of them have played a part in it, be it, uh, it, it um, multi-choice, SABC, ETV, they've all played a part in the various significant delays. What is clear is you suddenly get this, our current minister who comes in and she says, I'm going to make this my project and I'm going to get this thing done. Right? Much like Boris Johnson, she wants to get something done. So everyone sounds as though she's actually going to do something. And we're so, so starved of politicians doing something that we almost believe them when they say they're going to. Right? And so she comes along and says she's going to get this done. The problem is she ignores that 33%. They don't go and roll out. They don't do research. They don't make sure that those people have alternatives. In fact, what we know is true is that they don't have any research. We've been in court with them on a number of occasions in the High Court, the Supreme Court, I mean, in the, in the um, Supreme Court and in the Constitutional Court where we won against the minister again, which is that they basically are wanting to cut the signal off without making sure that that third of our population have access to information. And on that basis, we don't think that she can and should be going ahead. But that doesn't mean that this is a hard problem to solve. I mean, it's so frustrating, like the SABC, that we're having to spend so much time and energy fighting on something that's logical, like the board, or like getting this job done. Because had they made a plan with broadcasters and with all of the others, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, it would have been switched off. You know, we wouldn't be even needing to be having these discussions. But, of course, you know, their ability to do things other than, you know, seemingly want to steal or, or, or destroy seems to be significantly hampered. So that analog switch-off is a big issue. Our mobile operators are desperate for it. Uh, ENCA and the SABC, SABC have said to ECASA that they'll lose around 65% of their uh, audience and they, and therefore their income. Because remember, while they're a public broadcaster, they still funded largely commercially. They'll lose their audience. They lose their audience. They lose their advertising. It means they insolvent that much faster. It means government public bailouts even, even of an even greater scale. And again, all of this stuff could be avoided if. 
people made some wise decisions instead of the worst one. About a year ago, my DSTV box suddenly caught a lethal cold and died. There's no other way to describe it. The lights flickered, and then the life went out of the poor beast. And it, I had insurance on it, uh, you know, at some minimal amount of money. And I went over to the to the multi-choice office and handed them this inert rock. And they looked it up, and they said, yes, you should get a new one. And about eight minutes later, there was a new one in my hand, and away I went. It cost me, I don't know. 20 rand or something to, for processing or whatever it was. Surely that's not a hard process to manage to hand people one of these little boxes because it's not, it's not like the electronics in an F-16 or anything. It, it's pretty simple technology. You can build it at home if you're really smart. I mean, what you want is for, and, and one, an easy solution would be that you get the broadcasters that are already doing these things. To, you make some kind of a plan, you subsidize them or they get subsidized or something. You know, that's just about finding out and how you make a workable fair plan where if you had had multi-choice and open, um, open view, the ETV bunch and even StarSat going out and handing these, installing, because you do need to install the aerial and, you know, those sorts of things. So there is a cost to that. But once you do that, if you've got people that actually do it and they know what they're doing, they can do it. You know, I mean, they, if they are remarkably, you know, well-run, efficient entities, these things, you know, uh, open view went from, you know, a few, a few hundred thousand subscribers to well over uh, a few million now, I think in, in just uh, in under five years or something like that. So, you know, that shows you can go and you can roll these things out. DSTV is, is you know, you can install it anywhere and there are hundreds of installers. So that would have been a nice, easy solution, but. Politics and other things seemingly prevent that from happening. As I understand it further, and we're speaking to William Byrd of the Media Monitoring Africa Institution that pays careful watch to all this stuff, we're under in South Africa, as as are all other countries that are part of the, what is it, the International Post and Telecommunications Union, you're under an obligation to make the transfer from analog to digital by international treaty we seem stuck in the middle of the pond without paddles or rudders or compasses or anything else. I want you to be able to answer that, but hold that thought for just a second. We have to take a station break. And this is The Deep Dive. I'm Brooke Spector, and we're speaking with William Byrd of the Media Monitoring Africa, and we'll be right back after these messages. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back. And this is The Deep Dive. And I'm Brooke Spector. And today's guest is William Byrd of Media Monitoring Africa. And just before the break, he was going to explain to people like me the nature of international legal requirement that the country has to move from analog to digital, presumably in part so that uh, mobile communications and other such activities have more bandwidth. I mean, bandwidth is not infinite, there's, there, there are limits, and you have to manage this process properly. Help me through this one. Yeah, so in fact, our government and ICASA count this as one of their big victories. Uh, they already auctioned off a lot of that bandwidth, even though many of the mobile operators can't use all of it. And you're right, you know, the, the, the ITO did set a, a world switch-off date for that. I think it was already in 2016, from memory, somewhere around there. 
Um, and so what that means is, is there's, there's no formal legal sanction against us, but it means that that signal is no longer protected, even if we continue to use it. So uh, it means that if there are, you can't stop kind of regional slippage or if other countries, our next, our neighboring countries, for example, are using that uh, frequency for their mobile uh, services, we can't then go to the places near our borders and say, hey, you can't be using this for mobile because we're still using this for TV. As, as far as I'm aware, you know, we would no longer have any kind of legal leg to stand on because they would say, well, we should have switched this off some years ago anyway. You know, so, so there is certainly a clear and necessary sense of urgency, but it's just what I, what we fail to understand is just why the minister who likes to use the hashtag leave no one behind. Ironically, by leaving a third of the population behind, that's, they don't do these things and do what governments should be doing. And it's left to civil society to be going there and saying to them, hey, you need to actually pay attention to this. You can't just leave people behind because you want to get a box ticked in your, in your to-do list. So far, we've solved the problem of the SABC board. And we've solved the problem of analog to digital, but there's a whole chunk of your activity that we really haven't talked about. And that's the monitoring of content, not to make it so that you, it agrees with you or you with it, but to measure and analyze and evaluate how different broadcasters relate to important topics, issues and public concerns. And I know over the years I've looked at studies that you and your folks have, have produced on various things. How big a part of this, of your organization is this process still? Is that still a major focus or have you, have you been sort of drawn into the governance or misgovernance of public institutions more and more? So, I mean, for us, these things are all interrelated, but you, for a healthy media sector, you need policy that isn't going to limit and restrict journalists, you've got to take cognizance of the shifts occurring around technology, and that means addressing and working with the big platforms around many of their policies, some of them ridiculous and some of them disturbing. Elon Musk's approach to Twitter, for example, is something that doesn't just concern people in the States. It concerns all of us, um, you know, all the way down here in South Africa. So all of those things have a direct impact on our media and our, and our ability to see how our media can and do report on things. If women and journalists, women journalists are consistently attacked online for do, merely doing their job, that doesn't just stop those women and, 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 you know, perpetuate that level of violence and inequality. It also limits our, 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 our media freedom in, in a fairly direct uh, fashion. So we monitor and it still is the basis of, of all our work. We've got a lovely tool called Dexter. Uh, that is a machine learning entity that we've been building on and adding articles to since 2014. Dexter will have about 3 million carefully curated stories in uh, by the end of March, I think. Uh, we're about 2.9 at the moment, so by the end of March we should have 3 million stories. And that allows us to see really interesting trends over time because the thing about journalists and news is that very frequently, the way that they do things is that they're responding, they have to, because they're in the business of news, to whatever's happening and whatever's going on. What that prevents them from seeing very often are the kind of broader trends and patterns that they perpetuate. Some of them really good, uh, and some of them 
you know, far less than healthy. So a good one, for example, is that our media, you know, established media, and by that the community radio, community prints, you know, commercial public broadcast, all of them have a very clear bias in favor of our constitution. All of them, when the constitution is threatened or undermined, there'll be editorials, there'll be opinion pieces, there'll be clear positions taken that say, our constitution is really important. We need this. We need freedom of expression. They all take a similarly clearly biased view against xenophobia. Now, those things I think are all very, really positive and really strong. Now, you know, they'll even to talk, you know, in very strong opposing racism. So that's a really good thing, you know, that our media have that approach. And I think it's because we're a young democracy that we still do that. A slightly less positive thing is, is that, you know, like, media around the world, so it's not to say it's a unique South African problem, but the way that we represent uh, women or the way that we fail to represent or underrepresent, uh, you know, marginalized groups, people with disabilities, children, um, you know, and different issues is a, is, a, is a real challenge for our media. There's very few of them that do these things intentionally. So we use the monitoring in order to inform all of our work that that, that kind of goes on. So we're currently looking at we've been monitoring children for the last 20 years as an example, because this year we turned 30, so we'll be looking at, you know, looking at children and, and, and how they were represented 20, 20 years ago and how they're represented now. And broadly speaking, and this is the thing that's, that gives us hope, right, is that despite the picture being incredibly, remarkably bleak for South Africa, and despite there being a lot of things wrong with our media sector, and they are, you know, the reality is, is that on so many parameters, our media continues to do a better job now than it certainly did when we transitioned to, to a democratic state. And that's a really good thing. The way that we deal with things, the kind of general discourse, the way we represent race, gender-based violence on critical issues, the discourse and approach to those things has changed fundamentally. And, and those are and continue to be really strong uh, things that give us hope. And we only know those because we monitor the media. We're talking with William Byrd of Media Monitoring Africa Project Group Organization Effort. One of the things that should trouble you and anybody else who pays attention to the media, either professionally or just as a as a as a consumer of, of content, uh, is uh, the the issue that is that now has a name: the juniorization of the of the newsroom. That more and more um, people with very little experience are pushed out into the field or in or in front of a computer to to identify or research or write stories or broadcast stories without a whole lot of experience and at the same time the whole middle management of media uh has melted away uh largely i think in terms uh, because of the cost of managing such in, such institutions means that the, if you're going to if you're going to save costs, you get rid of the editors and the, the sub editors and the subject editors uh, because they cost a lot and they don't seem to do much. There are a few media entities that manage to buck the trend, right, uh, and still are growing and developing. And and some of their greatest strengths are that they bring in really good quality people in order to help build young people's skills. But by and large, uh, you know, and if you look at the success of, of an entity like Daily Maverick, you know, they've been bringing in a whole lot of people, uh, young people, but also there are a lot of wise, there are a lot of wise hands and minds behind 
an entity like that that's sitting there saying, okay, we need to be thinking about these things so that you're less likely to produce poor quality things. So, but your, your bigger traditional news entities, I mean, they are still struggling with that and how that kind of model can and should work. And what we're seeing now in response to that juniorization is the development of these kind of niche entities. So you get an entity like a Becky Sisa or a Ground Up or a Spotlight that'll have a dedicated focus to producing some kind of uh, news, be it focused on health, for example, like a Becky Sisa, or on you know social justice issues, more like a Ground Up, for example. Um, and the way that they cover those, because it's a, a fairly niche ent- entity, you're tending to get much better quality they're tending to be re- more reasonably or more adequately uh, funded, so it's not like their models are you know necessarily that long term, but at least they're a fairly strong response to the the dissipation of skills and expertise that we've seen in our newsrooms. So another example is you know specialist investigative journalism union uh, organisations like uh, Ama Bungane, for example, or Scorpio, or any of these. Things where you've got dedicated resources just to investigating things that ordinarily or, you know, 20, 30 years ago would have all fallen well within the realm of a, of a big, you know, well-resourced news organization. Those things aren't there. But where I think the big game change is going to be coming is around AI. And it's not because it's the trendy thing, but because you've now got it to a level where the kind of normal news stories that actually People need to know, but they don't need someone wasting, you know, three hours of their time writing them. They can be written in five minutes. Can be done by an AI-produced uh, entity. A friend of mine, another retired foreign service officer, has uh, noodled around a bit with AI, and I've been throwing challenges at him, saying, all right, I want you to ask it to deal with a particularly abstruse issue in international affairs but in sonnet form. About 15 minutes later, he sends it and says, that's not half bad, you know? Partly because, you know, the the backbone of the thing has an, all, an awful lot of information preset in it, but it, it only has information, I discovered, up until the year 2021. Nobody has fed in anything since then in it, so it, it, it can't make it, or it's very obviously going to be impossible to make judgments about things that happened last week at least now, although who knows what's going to happen in six months from now. So, I mean, that is an issue. And and I, and, and I mean, look, the, where I think journalists still have incredible value over, you know, an AR thing is, is that they can see connections and build things because they're not computers, right? So you'll, you need your people, and this is, again, we'll see why people need that wealth of experience to understand international affairs. You might just take an incident and say, oh, well, it means this. But actually, if you've got the knowledge of saying, well, three years ago this happened and five years before that, and then recently the government in XYZ country was talking about these things, it gives it a context that only a proper seasoned journalist will be able to give it. But a short, short report on the, you know, the, 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 the naval exercise in, uh, you know, outside of Simonstown, and I, I can write that that says, you know, they went out, they, they blew up some targets, they had a nice time, they can include some nice video. You don't need a journalist doing that, but for the, for the, uh, the, the, the greater context, what does it mean for our international perception and, and our international relationships, et cetera, et cetera? 
you need a real journalist to do that because the AI won't be able to do that. Even if you get an AI that is going to be able to be fed constantly from, you know, the latest data and the latest resources, which will happen. You know, I mean, they're now just playing games with the thing, but it's, I think it's potential to act as a, a really powerful tool for journalism. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a really positive trend if we look uh, to the next sort of as long as my memory doesn't fail me, and I remember all the history books and political science theory textbooks that I've read over the years and the literature and so forth, I guess I guess I'm still safe. But the people who come after me may have a little more trouble in that regard because they they will be from the get go they will be leaning on AI, a Chat a GPT, and and the the Bing one to first base on a, on a topic, and that's going to be something of an awkward moment. Yeah, it will be. I mean, it's by no means, you know, a, a thing that's going to just suddenly remove the need for, for clever journalists. I think it's going to highlight the fact of why and how journalists can really add value. So chat GPT will be able to do a nice little summary, for example, of a court case over the day. But chat GPT isn't going to be able to say, well, this is what this thing means. And this is, these are the key points over the day. These were the key arguments, and, and and here's why we think they were. So for that kind of actual analysis, we still need people to be able to do that. And that means that those skills aren't just memory, remembering what we read five years ago. Those are skills of, of critical thinking. Those are skills that often, if they don't have them, they can be, you know, gradually taught, but they're also skills that you have to learn through experience of knowing this is what happens. Journalists need skills to say, well, if I can't get a quote from someone, what do I do? And, I'm, and they're not responding. Like, how do I make sure I reflect that other, that other, uh, that other view or opinion? And that comes from experience of saying, well, here's what you do. You know, you need your, your, your journalists who've been around the block and then some to be saying, okay, yeah, try this, think through this to do that. Or there will be people who will make things up. This is not, this has not been frequent, but it's certainly been just enough to get people's attention. I mean, in a, in a major magazine in the U.S. with, a, with an enormous uh, lineage, uh, the New Republic, there was a dreadful scandal of a young man who did all these wonderful stories, except that he made most of them up entirely. And then there was a woman for the Washington Post, of all places, who got a Pulitzer Prize for her in-depth reporting of the, the cocaine crack epidemic's impact on preteen children, except that she hadn't actually talked to any preteen children, let alone followed their progress or descent. She had to give the Pulitzer Prize back, but uh, the damage was done. And AI doesn't doesn't at least at this point appear to have much of a conscience. No, I mean it, it doesn't. It'll only have the conscience that we give it, and that's why we need to make sure that you get journalists to say, well. Does AI have a conscience and what kind of conscience and what kind of biases and assumptions are we going to build into it? Because it's only going to have the ones that we build into it if we deliberate about that, you know. But again, it highlights why you need media and credible ethical journalism because what distinguishes that from everything else is the fact that they subscribe and adhere, you know, broadly speaking to widely accepted standards and, and, and principles of reporting and where they don't then that's going to be a problem. And, and the more AI increases, the more convincing, um, you know, fake things become on, on, on these social media platforms. I think 
the more important journalism is going to become for uh, our societies, not less, even more, because people are going to go, well, where can I actually find something that is accurate and I can actually believe in, even if sometimes they get it wrong? I'm going to ask one more question of you with the time remaining. We're going to take a short break. Uh, but think about this one. Media, newspapers, radio, TV, we, we all get criticized sometimes for not being dispassionate or nonpartisan or even-handed. I'm trying to think of the, the way it sometimes is described in not always giving both sides or all sides to a question as opposed to propounding a particular point of view or even having a point of view. Now, I, I, I tend to subscribe to the to the view that the facts matter, but the the writer or the broadcaster's point of view also matters because their understanding of the facts may be different from somebody else's. It's kind of hard to argue whether or not there is a ship off Richards Bay that is engaged in a, in a naval exercise. There is. Okay. But what does it mean becomes a question that doesn't always have a hard and fast answer. Think about that. We'll, we'll come back after our last break. And perhaps you can posit your own feeling on that question in a couple of minutes. This is The Deep Dive, and I'm Brooks Spector. And we've been speaking with William Byrd of the Media Monitoring Africa Group, uh, an institution which over the last several decades has paid close attention to the progress, the evolution, and in some cases the decline of uh, media in this country. And in particular, now he's in the news because he's pushing the presidency really hard to get on with the program and a point of board for the SABC. And we'll be right back after this. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is Brooke Spector with the Deep Dive, and I've been speaking with William Byrd of the Media Monitoring Africa body. And we've been talking about all manner of the ways in which uh, the media is in the crosshairs or uh, the way in which media institutions are being managed or mismanaged. And in the last section, I asked our guest to think about one last question about the, the issue of partisanship or dispassionate observership among reporters and broadcasters, and even if there is such a thing. Bill, your, your reactions to this, please. So, I mean, this idea that is around objectivity, I think, is fairly and appropriately nonsense. You know, um, what's, because everyone has their own perspective. We all have life experiences. But what distinguishes any banana bread on, on social media putting out a view in a journalist is that a journalist has to adhere to critical ethical principles including balance, fairness and accuracy, right? If they're going to be doing journalism. And that's different from uh, an opinion and or analysis piece. And I think that what we have tended to uh, miss a lot of is trying to draw far more clear distinctions between those things. News as letting us know what's going on as opposed to having a view and an opinion on that, right? And sometimes, obviously, and even there, the language that people use matters. I mean, the obvious one, terrorists versus freedom fighters, in terms of how you refer to people. 
So the perspective of the media entity will necessarily influence it, right? An entity like, uh, you know, Business Day is there to report on, on business, etc. Financial Times, you expect them to report on financial matters because that's, it's in their name, right? You're not expecting them to open that and read a whole lot about, uh, you know, farming and the challenges of, and the challenges of horticulture. Precisely because they've been clear about saying this is who we are, these are the kinds of issues we're going to report on. But within that, when they're reporting on news and when they're reporting on things, and our media are really good at this in South Africa, especially in an election period, is it's very, very rare, unlike many other countries around the world, for our media to actually be as overtly biased. Does it mean that there's still a, uh, you know, that there's no perspective in there? Of course not. But when I talk about that sort of overtly biased thing, if you're going and you're reporting on the ANC, for example, and you really, really love the ANC, and you say, well, they're the greatest, or the ANC attacks the DA, and then you neglect to ask the DA for their view or to refute that, or even an opportunity to refute that, that's just bad journalism. Right? That's not being fair. It's not getting uh, a different side to it. And this is, and so in politics terms, it's quite easy. You need to give different sides to whatever the political hot potato is. Where it becomes tricky, of course, is that these days people will refute what's real and what isn't real. And that makes things a lot more difficult because people will say, well, no, South Africa didn't go and do a naval exercise. And luckily we know enough now that that exercise has taken place because there's been, you know, multiple credible reports Talking pictures and images and videos, you know, of, of these things and, and people have seen it and all sorts of things. So that is there. But initially it was easy for people to know, no, no, that's not, that's just, that's just made up. And when you start to, to draw, to bring that kind of issue in where as a matter of practice, you make things up like the, um, you know, the, the 10 babies, the couplet story that was, uh, you know, run by independent media, that kind of thing undermines people's general faith and credibility in in organizations and news media as a whole, not just in the independent, because they all think oh, all of these people are are the same. And that's then further makes that really, really difficult and challenging for news groups and news organizations. So you, I don't think you can get rid of a perspective. And clearly what you want is for someone to be able to say, you know, I want to get, I want to watch uh, I want to listen to Pi FM. I want to watch Al Jazeera. I want to watch BBC. I want to watch Sky. I want to watch CNN. You know, I want to watch all of these entities that are hopefully going to give me something that I can then decide for myself, ideally, you know, where, where they lie. Because the way that they've made that story is full of choices, but you still can and must expect media to include facts where they are, where they occur. And that doesn't mean, for example, that you just make stuff up or, and this both sides of the story thing is nonsense if it means that the other side is patently not true. So it's not unfair to talk about vaccines as being effective and then to exclude some anti-vaccine nut jobs, right? That's not about fairness. That's about reality and non-reality. Yeah, some of this begins to sound a little bit too much like modern existential philosophy. I, we're, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, Schrodinger's cat as a news issue. I mean, is, is there a cat? Is it dead? Is it alive? Is it in the box? Uh, and no one knows for sure. And part of the problem is 
the old adage with the journalism is the first draft of history. Uh, yes. it's, it's true primarily because it isn't something that is done slowly and deliberately and painstakingly over months on end as you weigh all the different bits of evidence carefully. It's not it, too much of it, perhaps, but certainly much of it is done on the fly because it's news. It's not history. Unfortunately, now it's just far too easy to kind of literally make things up and have them seen as as news. But it does require, you know, journalists to actually go out. And I guess it does come down to whether you believe there is a reality out there. And, and I think for the most part, most of us do. We know that if we walk out of our door and put our foot down, it's going to land on the ground. It's not going to land on a, on a big piece of cheese that's on the moon. You know, it, it's going to be on the ground. Those things are hardcore realities. If you jump up, you will land. It's not you're going to lose gravity, right? And, and if we accept those kind of basic principles, we're saying within that framework, there are lots of perspectives and there are lots of things we don't know, uh, but we, there are a lot of things that we do know and that we should continue to take on trust until such time as they may be refuted. Maybe the earth is a big piece of cheese and we just haven't discovered that yet. But there's certainly more than enough actual evidence to suggest that it really, really isn't. We have been speaking with uh, William Byrd of the Media Monitoring Africa Project Group Institution on all manner of things, uh, cabbages to kings pretty much, uh, and we're going to go off and do a, a reconnaissance about whether or not the ground is in fact made out of blue cheese. I tend to think it's made out of something else, but that's the realist in me, I guess. But it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it very much you sharing your time with us. And we'll be back again next week with another guest on an, another interesting, important, timely topic. Not history, but things as they're happening around us now. Bill, again, thanks very much for joining us. Great. Thanks so much for having me on the show.